This is How I Got Here, a podcast where we interview professionals about how they navigated the twists and turns of their careers. We hope these conversations can help you figure out where you want to go and how you'll get there. We're your hosts. I'm Lara Mitra. And I'm Eric Eliason. In each episode, we'll first give you a quick intro about who we are speaking with, and then we'll dive into the interview. To stay up to date, follow How I Got Here on LinkedIn and subscribe to our newsletter at howigotherepodcast.com. We hope you enjoy. Veronica has one of the most varied careers of anyone we featured on the podcast. She was a telemarketer, a legislative aide in the government, a successful mommy blogger, marketer, general manager, entrepreneur, and more. Sometimes her career moves were the result of following her passion. Other times, they were the result of making sacrifices for those she loved. Despite frequently moving across multiple roles and organizations, one thing remained consistent throughout every single role she had, her positive attitude. Listen to Veronica share how she sees the good in any circumstance, even when the odds are stacked against her, why she holds on to and revisits every single performance evaluation ever written about her, and how she's currently building what she hopes will become the next billion-dollar company. We'll be right back after the break. Hi, I'm Veronica Lantigua Armstrong. I'm CEO and co-founder of Il De Nature, a bee-powered luxury home fragrance company. So maybe to start, do you mind telling us a bit about the first job you ever had? My first job, I was a telemarketer and I worked at our local newspaper. I was like 14, so I was only able to work like a few hours here and there. But yeah, it was a telemarketer and I actually really loved it. That's kind of where I learned the thrill of selling things, right? So Mm. it really, I was already like a very persistent and determined person, but the more no's I heard, I just, I would be like, okay, let me categorize the no's. People tend to say no if I say this thing, let me say this. And I would keep getting closer to the yeses. And you got to make a game out of a job like that. And I think that's number one, where I learned how to find some joy in any occupation or role. And secondly, just where I became really passionate about that, you know, hit of dopamine you get whenever you're able to sell a product. Wow. Veronica, it's interesting. I think most of the guests that we have had on, you know, are college educated and they would think about their career starting after they graduate. So it's really interesting. You think about like your first job and all these things that you learned at, you know, I think you said 14. Why did you start working so early? Like why, why do you, why was that so important to you? Well, it's also probably a lack of privilege, right? Like uh, my family didn't have a lot of money and I was offered a a job that paid almost as much as my mom made at the time. I I took it on sort of as a personal responsibility to contribute to my household, mostly because I knew my mother could not afford college on her own. And even with what my dad could contribute, I, I also knew that that just probably wasn't in the cards for me. So that's really what inspired me. I wanted to help. And it's interesting that you said that, you know, despite hearing all those no's, it, that, that first telemarketer job realized that you can find joy in any occupation. I'm thinking about myself in that role. I think I would be heartbroken and never want to do that type of work again. But for you, you had the opposite reaction. Is that, is that right? Yeah. So my parents came here from the Dominican Republic and what they, what they did for a living was they worked in a factory. And so my mom worked like on an assembly line, which was very monotonous work. I just had a profound amount of respect for them for doing what they had to, for me to have a pretty awesome life. 
So there's always been sort of a, a respect for any occupation that ensures a roof over your family's head. Before I had that job, though, I just did some odd jobs. So my stepdad at the time was a contractor. He would ask me like, hey, do you want to come with me to tear up this house? And I never said no. And I remember there was like one summer vacation where I was in this like old decrepit house with him where this like obese man lived and like had refused to leave. And the bathroom was just, you know, just imagine a home that hasn't seen anybody else but the people that live there for years. And I ripped up that bathroom with him that whole entire vacation with no complaint. And so for me, it's like, if you tell me my job is to clean toilets, I'm like, well, I'm going to clean them better than anybody else, right? My job that day was like rip up dirty, nasty flooring. And I'm like, well, going to do it faster than everybody else. I was just about the dollar contributing to the family and working as hard as my parents. And so when you went to college, did you continue working to contribute to, obviously for your own tuition, but also for the family? My college journey is a very long one. I arrived at Colby Sawyer College in New London, New Hampshire when I was 17, um, because I didn't turn 18 until later that summer. And I made it maybe a few months. I got some ridiculous scholarship, which is why I went there, but I had $7,000 left to pay. And my family couldn't afford that. And there was nowhere to work up in that beautiful area. And I had to drop out. Wow. Which was... I I think that's just probably one of the most painful experiences I've ever had. And I just completed my degree as I went, dropping out when I couldn't afford it, going back when I could, and then subsequently finishing uh, next month. Wait, sorry, Veronica, did I hear you right? You said you're finishing next (laughs) month. Yeah, I went back in January because I had two semesters. I've been in school full time during this pandemic. I believe in finishing what I started and I felt that it just, it, it sets a good example for my children. Um, and it just, it was important to me. I don't know. I just always think back to how it felt leaving that school just because I was poor. So yeah, I, I formally graduate next month. How does it feel to be so close to that after, you know, this long journey? I, I can't even describe it because it doesn't feel real. It just, I, I can't believe it. And, you know, I give a lot of credit to my husband because it would be easy not to go back, right? Like my career is kind of crushing. You sort of have your mission and your values. And I think one of mine is just finish what you start um, if it serves you. And I think the experience served me really well. Well, wow, that's an amazing commitment to make to yourself and to your career. But to go back, I was wondering when you dropped out of Colby, what did you end up doing next? When um, I dropped out of school, I was back at my mom's house figuring out what I would do for work full time so I could get back to school. My dad just calls me and he's like, hey, you want to be a legislative aide? Which was my dream job. He's like, yeah, you want to be a legislative aide? Like if you wanted it, it's yours. This is nuts. So I, you know, I just didn't believe it. I didn't believe it until the day that uh, the Honorable Representative Jose Al Santiago picked me up and drove me to work with him um, at the Massachusetts State House. So what I became was Jose's legislative aide. My dad had been his campaign manager. So I got hired for two reasons, nepotism and because (laughs) the more qualified, talented person who preceded me left them in a bind. Um, And politician kind of owed his career to my dad at that point. So very much nepotism, but I kind of crushed it. I did really well. I care deeply about my community. I'm from Lawrence. Jose represented Lawrence. And at the time, the way the district was drawn up, it was Lawrence and a portion of Methuen. 
it was an incredible opportunity for me to give back to my community to, you know, I would, as soon as the budget was released, I would review it, figure out what amendments needed to be made. I was out there talking to the community. I just, I love that job in a way that words really can't describe. And so I think I had the good fortune of learning what it was like to love your job really, really young. That's awesome. And I know despite loving your job as a legislative aide, you eventually left the public sector and transitioned into the private sector. So could you tell us a little bit about how that transition happened? I had no idea what a private sector job was. Like my whole life, you know, professional life, I just was working on campaigns and in the legislature and stuff. So I started temping and then I ended up at Bain & Company. So I got to Bain, I was a manager assistant which was great. I got, I I think I worked for like three different managers. So I got a little bit of exposure to their different segments and and categories, the cases they were working on. So that was pretty cool. But after about four months, I was like, okay, got it. Management consulting is cool. So I finished school. I got to get into a top level MBA, make a lot of money. I'll make the immigrants (laughs) proud. And then I'm done. I'll be a management consultant. I was wrapping up my degree at that. I was almost done at that point. But um, I'm like, okay, so I'm going to finish this degree. I'll go right to business school. And I started looking at different schools. So where all did you visit and which one did you ultimately decide on? So I was doing my rounds um, between Carnegie Mellon and then Johnson at Cornell. So I didn't know exactly where I was going to go, but I kind of had everything lined up, right? Like I was about to graduate um, and the MBA was like, graduate and get the MBA. And I was just, and I was there. Um, it didn't happen for me. And I think it's for the best because number one, I would have made an awful management consultant. Wow. So what did you do instead of getting your MBA? I met my husband. I dropped out of school and I moved to Vermont. Wow. I quit Bain. Was that for, for love? I hate to admit it, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Like the most non-gangster thing I've ever done in my life. <laughs> So we know you spent some time in Vermont with your husband and you worked at General Dynamics procuring complex machine parts for weapon systems. And you also had two children during this time. But then your husband got into business school at Cornell, which is one of the schools that you had originally wanted to go to. And you both made the move to Ithaca with your kids. What were you doing during your time in Ithaca while your husband was in business school? So while my husband was in business school, I couldn't do anything but take care of the children, um, which was really jarring. I had been working since I was 14. I never had like be a stay-at-home mom on my roadmap. And I definitely did not have Mm -hmm. be a stay-at-home mom seven hours away from family in a 600 square foot dorm on my, you know, business school bingo card. Doing what I do first of all, it was awesome to have that time with the kids because they're the best. But secondly, it's also really tough, right? Like it's isolating winters there, even though I'd just come from Vermont, like it's a cold place. You guys understand the business school experience. Like my husband was really tied up doing all this like fun, exciting stuff. And I was like, you know, watching eight hours of Nickelodeon. And that's when I became a blogger. So it was like, gosh, I don't even know what year it was. 2010 maybe when um, blogging was first starting to pick up and so I saw an opportunity which was to be a parenting blogger and then I saw my niche which was my husband was at an Ivy League institution that I you know was squatting at 
And I kind of put the two together and started writing. And I, I did fairly well. Um, helped pay for some of our experiences. My husband went and did a semester at London School of Economics. We all joined him. CNN had reached out to me about some of my writing. I was working with clients directly as an affiliate. So I, at that time, cell phone cameras were really janky. And so I would write about how to take really great photos of your kids. And I was fortunate I had two kids that were in my house all the time. And people, you know, the, the, the content resonated. And so I was selling these like $3,500 cameras. And every time one sold, I would get a cut. So I'm kind of like I'm learning all of these things without really knowing what's going on. So to me, I'm just like, meh, you know, I'm just messing around and killing time. But it's actually how I became a marketer. So for example, one of my blog posts, for whatever reason, Orc like found out about me. My daughter and I were featured like in a national commercial. So I learned how to take that traffic from the commercial to my blog and monetize it. So I had all these like random skills. I applied for a job at Hoffmaster. It was associate channel manager, which meant Target was my, my only client. And so what I did was I oversaw about $30 million of programs of seasonal party programs to Target. So end caps that had paper and plastic party supplies. And it was super fun. Wow. I, I'm struck by, you know, you, you talked about going from watching eight hours of Nickelodeon a day to then being an extremely successful blogger. Like CNN is picking you up. You're selling these expensive cameras. Did you think at the time that you could just do blogging full time and that this side hustle could, you know, become your main gig? Is that something you thought about? It's something Eric and I dream about. <laughs> <laughs> so if you think about, you know, again, like I'm, I'm an old lady. So like back then, it's a very white space, number one. things It's crazy because it wasn't that long ago, but things have changed a lot, right? So it wasn't that there wasn't a space for me. There, there were women of color and black women that, that were making it happen, but the bar was different for us. And so here's my thing. my I care deeply about my husband's career and I care deeply about my dad's career, right? So at the time, my father was the mayor of Lawrence. People were really unfair to him and he was accused of all this crazy stuff and he was in the news a lot. Um, and I just, I didn't want to do anything or talk about anything that would ever reflect poorly on hmm. my family. Hmm. Um, and those were the two main characters at that time, right? So my dad was going through that stuff politically and my husband had just spent all, you know, these two years working really hard to get to this point in his career. And to be a successful blogger like that then, it was very much that like confessional, right. you know, like I had postpartum depression and I drank a bottle of bleach, like type stuff. I'm not to diminish anybody's experience. Like people, a lot of women really, it, they found a really great outlet um, to connect with other women who were going through these terrible things that people weren't talking about, right? But mm -hmm. there was another aspect where it was like, there was, you know, the people who were sharing their authentic selves, which I support um, entirely, but there was this other part where I started to feel like, even if that wasn't your story, that's what people wanted, right? Like there had to be, a, and, and I don't know, again, if it was just growing up in a house with a, a, a community activist and then a politician, there's just parts of my life where I, I'm not willing to monetize or share, even though I know people would love to read about them. And, you know, now that I'm older, of course, I'll tell anybody anything, but um, <laughs> <laughs> at the time, like when you're still building a career and, and things like that, it just, it didn't feel right. I have a question for you, Veronica. I think multiple times throughout this story, you've, you know, 
deferred to others, either whether it was your father in that situation or moving to Vermont um, and giving up kind of this dream that you had of, you know, you know, getting your MBA and then becoming a management consultant, which maybe was a good thing because it wasn't the right fit. But you also strike me as someone that's so ambitious. And I'm, I'm just wondering how you reconcile those two like things. Like how did, was that, were those tough decisions for you? Like how did you end up deciding to, to pursue one, one instead of pursuing like your, your career plan? I don't have a great answer for that. I think that what I learned to do is adapt my ambitions to my environment, right? So mm-hmm. even though I would maybe sort of parallel my dad's career or I would step back for, for Canaan to go to business school or whatever it was, I would just find like a new way to crush it if you think about it, even if it wasn't super intentional, you know, like, did I want to go to business school? Yes. Did I want to go to that one? Yes. Was watching him graduate like the best day of my life? It absolutely was. Did it hurt? It definitely did. Like it def, you know, I would be lying if I say said it didn't. It was, um, it's hard to watch someone live your dream, but it's a little easier when it's your spouse, right? So yeah. it was hard for me, but I think it just sort of strengthened my resolve. And, and I just, I would find a way to crush it in my own, you know, by my own parameters, <laughs> depending on where I was. So when I was in like the 600 square foot dorm, like a big win for me was being featured in a commercial with my kid or bringing yeah. in 1400 bucks to help pay for the tickets. When we went to London, I would just change my definition of success and I would just alter my ambition to my circumstances. Wow. That positive like mindset that you have on on everything from your very very first job as a telemarketer, you know, and seeing the good in that is just so remarkable. Is that something you learned over time or have you always just had this positive outlook uh, on life? And I'm I'm wondering just, you know, how do you translate that? How do how does someone get that if they don't have that already? This is a very unconventional response, but um I've had so many times just a lot of instances in my life where I was just like I shouldn't be here or I have no idea how I got here you know I I had a good childhood but I mean I grew up in tough circumstances you know like I remember getting robbed and then watching the people across the street playing with my things and like daring us to do something about it I've been robbed at gunpoint like (laughs) I've survived a lot of pretty wild stuff and so I think it's just sort of become my personal brand, I always say I'm a cockroach because I just think I can survive anything. Like I re- <laughs> so I think the positivity comes from just like desperately wanting to be on brand, um, <laughs> having the continuity because there's just, again, like every single odd has been stacked against me and every single place that I have been, people like me are not invited. We're not mm-hmm. often there. And it always felt like I shouldn't be here and I am and that's something to celebrate. And then I just survived a bunch of crazy stuff and said, there must be a reason why I'm here and I'm going to keep moving. And Veronica, it seems even more on your brand to take something like a cockroach and spin that into a positive light. (laughs) That is really something amazing. Cheers to you. So we wanted to go on to the next step in your career, which was after becoming a marketer and learning the ropes, you then started a job at Love Pop in Boston which for people that don't know, it's one of those uh, creators of beautiful 3D cards that open up and and pop out. And I didn't actually know this, but they're a venture-backed business, which uh, is pretty amazing. And so 
Lara and I were wondering how you ended up making that transition from working at Hoffmaster in the Midwest to then moving to this venture-backed startup in Boston. We just had a conversation. I remember it. And we were like, do we just go, should we go to, you know, home? I'm from here. He's not. And he was like, let's just go home. Let's try something else. And so this is, you know, the heart and soul of healthcare, which is what my husband was doing at the time. So we came back. I start researching and I was interviewing with a tech stars company at the time. They don't, they were acquired and stuff like that, but I was interviewing with this company and um, my husband was like, well, if you're going to do this, there's these guys um, out of Harvard business school and they're looking for you. They're looking for a person that understands paper party and, and marketing. I'm like, Nope, I already did that. I'm all set. And <laughs> he just kept saying, he's like, but they're looking for you. He's like, I don't care. I already did it. I want to do it again. And he's like, well, I'm going to put a deck together, management consultant. I'm going to put a deck together. <laughs> and there's like, do you see how there's like no story about my career life that doesn't involve him or my dad? But he's like, I'm going to put a deck together. You take a look at it. Make sure it's accurate. I'm sending it. I'm like, do which one? I don't care. Um, so he puts together this beautiful deck. He sends it along. And Wambi calls me. Wambi's the CEO of Love Pop. Within like two seconds of meeting, I was like, yes. Pop up cards are my life. This is my home. This is where I'm at. I had no childcare. My daughter like hadn't had a school. I'm like, yes, I'm going to take like an $80,000 pay cut. That sounds amazing. I really turned my life upside down. I, I think we were paying for me to be there the first year because we had to go put my daughter in a private school um, and, you know, just really turn our lives upside down for the opportunity. But I, I believed in it that deeply. And so I think I was, I think I was full-time employee, like four or six or something like that. And I was the first marketing hire. What were those years at, at Love Pop like? And, and then why did you ultimately leave? So, you know, remember those Friday nights when I would watch Shark Tank and I said, mm -hmm. I'm going to be on that show. I think it was my first day on the job. Wambi was like, hey, we're going to be on Shark Tank in six months. So six months later, I was on Shark Tank, right? So wow. when I used to watch the show. I thought I was going to be the entrepreneur, right? And I would be pitching my business. And it's just, I always tell this story because it's just so funny how life happens and, and how six months from today, like you have no idea where you're going to be. I was on Shark Tank. I was like one of the fake customers, I think, for the first year. I got there, <laughs> on it. It, that was my second experience of loving what I did more than anything in the world. And I felt incredibly blessed and lucky. I used to say it was my third kid, you know, it was, I chose love pop over a lot of things in my life, a lot of opportunities, a lot of time, sleep, anything. I, I just, I believed in the mission. I believed in John Umwambi. I believed in my colleagues. My heart and soul is embedded in that company and anyone that knows it well would agree. It was just, you know, one of the greatest privileges of my life. And so me leaving at the time, um, so I became GM, which was just really interesting to go from just all of us around a table at Techstars <laughs> to like the country kind of knowing about us and being a really big company. And so it had a fairly big team, brought a product to market, grew up pretty aggressively, but I really wanted to do early again. And in hindsight, I don't know that that was the best decision. What I probably should have done was gone straight to entrepreneurship. But um, I kind of wanted to see how it was done, right? Like Love Pop was my only startup. That, that, that was it for me. So um, I sort of did that when, it, when I left Love Pop. I went to another really early stage startup. And I just, I wanted to go somewhere smaller earlier and just see if I, see if I could do it again. That drive to start your own thing is a powerful motivator. It's definitely something Laura and I have felt. 
Now, we know that you did end up making the jump to found your own thing. When did you first realize that you had that deep desire to do that, so much so that it made you give up a job that you absolutely loved? So I think I've known that I wanted to start my own company for a bit, probably um, not long into my tenure at Love Pop. I was like, ah, this is actually what I'm supposed to be doing, right? Like, so I finally felt like I had a roadmap for my future. I try to keep a re- my reviews from like every job I've ever had and I reflect on them to make sure I'm not like repeating the things that people told me I need to work on. Mm. Um, ultimately, one major learning that I had is, is don't treat someone else's startup like it's your own. And, and I don't say that to, you know, take away from my experiences at, at Love Pop at all. Um, I, I will still claim part of that is mine because I love it forever and I worked really hard, but it's not my company, right? And so what I was given to someone else's dream could have been applied to my own dream. I got to a point after three years, it was like, do I know everything? Absolutely not. But do I feel better prepared than I did before this opportunity? Like a hundred percent. Right. And, and other people saw that in me as well, which is how my partners reach out to me and asked me to be CEO. So I think of entrepreneurship right now. I am a co-founder. I am a CEO, but it's, I, I feel like I still have my training wheels on in some sense. So how did your current startup, Isle the Nature, which creates sustainable non-toxic candles, come to be? It wasn't that I was sitting around obsessing over candles. Yeah. Um, I met a brilliant person who was addressing a cause that was very near and dear to me. My partner, Lynn, my now partner, Lynn, had just stepped down as the CEO of JWT in New York, this like, you know, globally renowned advertising firm. And she had just set off to go independent. And uh, she was like, okay, well, let me talk to you about a thing that I'm doing and let me get your take. So the whole thing was they'd been to Dominica where their friends owned a resort. Hurricane Maria like decimated this island, caused very near to my heart because my parents are from Dominican Republic, another Caribbean island. Who doesn't care about climate change, right? Like really sad story about what happened to the island. And she was like, well, I told them, you guys need another revenue stream. This is nuts. Like, you know, tourism is all, you know, haywire because of the flight patterns. So anyway these brilliant advertising and luxury consumer people were talking about this idea. She calls me in. I thought for some customer acquisition and marketing advice, because that's what I do. And at the end she was like, and you know, like, do you want to be involved? Do you like to be CEO? And I'm like, ha, funny, you know, like why me? Right. So it took me like a year and a half to get to really be like, Oh, they're serious. Like they really do want me to do this. So that's how I became the CEO of Ilda Nature. Over the course of really researching the business and, and getting really close to the story it, it of course it like became my own right mm. especially now that we're in our homes more than ever i care deeply about creating an environment inside my four walls that's like enjoyable and beautiful everybody's happy to be here and i think candles can be part of that if they're clean you described your role at love pop as the second job that you fell in love with and i'm curious if you see your current role as ceo as you know the third job that you're in love with yeah i do love it but it's almost it's almost an obsession too right like i firmly believe that we have created the most beautiful candle that the world has ever known like i believe that nobody can convince me otherwise 
Um, and that was kind of like my step one to when I fell in love at Love Pop, right? Where it was just like, no, this is literally the best greeting card that any human being has ever made, like full stop. <laughs> so like for me, it like goes in stages, right? Like, so right now I'm in my like, oh my goodness, this is actually real. This is happening. We're about to ship product. Secondly, I'm literally obsessed with this product and I love it more than anything in the world besides my babies. There's just nothing better than creating something for people to enjoy, seeing it out in the wild. I don't know. It's hard for me to even like put it in words. I, I'm obsessed and I love it. I wanted to go back to something you mentioned a little bit earlier, which is that you keep your performance evaluations from all of your past jobs. And not only that, but you actually go back and, and read them pretty often. I wanted to hear a little bit more about that and, and other ways that you reflect on how you're doing professionally, on your career, on your goals, on, on how you're trying to grow. Yeah, and I don't know if this is healthy behavior. <laughs> I think that I'm addicted to feedback. Like, I, I, I think some people consider it torture. I like being told, like, what, like, I ask my kids for feedback. And I love them. But they will never <laughs> give, like, honest feedback. <laughs> like, I, I want it, you know, like, right, for example, like, this month, I know I'm a bad mother this month. I am. Like, I have ignored so many things because I just have to survive this last month. I know I am, but if I'm like, okay, I want to sit you guys down. How am I doing as a parent? I'm like, oh my God, you're the best. Like you're the best mother. Aww. Yeah. Super nice. But I'm like, just like tell me something I could do better. Like, come on. So I really, I think it's my personality, but I, I keep those reviews and I'm so embarrassed to admit this, but a few months ago, don't know what drew me to do it. This is super embarrassing, but I pulled out the performance review. Um, it was one that John Wise wrote. I think it was, maybe I was transitioning to GM. It didn't matter because the, the same exact thing was on like two reviews that preceded it. I have a habit of taking on too much, like an inhuman amount of work that no human can ever finish, but like insisting that I can do it and then not doing it, which can erode trust. It mm -hmm. seems so obvious. And so at this point, I learned not to do that to other people. So I did take the feedback, right? Mm -hmm. So if I was working in an office again, probably wouldn't be one of my areas of development because I really did hear that feedback. And, and it mm -hmm. doesn't mean that I got it that one time and I immediately changed it. That was just a very bad habit of mine, but I was doing it to myself and that's what's super embarrassing about it, right? So I'm like kind of working solo for these months and I go and I go and read that and I'm like, I'm doing it again. Like I went and I looked at like my monthly planning, my weekly planning, and I was like, no one single human being could do this. So like, why are you setting yourself up to fail and then getting into a funk when you can't do the thing that no human being could ever do, mm. right? And so that's the value of those performance reviews to me right now. My career is very self-directed. It's about keeping myself honest and making sure that as I'm scaling this company and I'm preparing to hire people and then eventually grow it to a $1 billion company, that I'm entering each stage of growth just at the highest level of performance that I can and so the best tool that I have at my disposal is what some really brilliant people that I worked with um, have to say about me. Veronica, we asked this of everybody, and I'm really interested to hear your answer of this. Because you've had the opportunity to work in a number of roles where you've loved what you, you did and were doing at the time, you know, how do you think about defining a successful career? And do you feel like you, you've had one yet? Or are you still working towards it? They say that if you're really good at what you do, you're always going to think you're not good at it. Yeah. 
I've, I feel like I've done some cool stuff, right? Like I loved my, my legislative job. I love, love pop. And then the opportunity I have right now is legit the craziest opportunity of, of my life. When I step outside of it, I can see how others would feel like it's a very successful career. I feel very um, thankful for the experiences, but no, I don't because I haven't changed the world yet. And so that's my bar, right? I, I don't want to take away from like the amazing, cool stuff that I've had and the opportunities that I've had. There's just, I guess it's just so much I want to accomplish. And maybe this answer is reflective of my performance review feedback, which is <laughs> <laughs> trying to make myself do more stuff than someone can in a lifetime. Maybe that's just what I'm doing. But um, no, I just, I feel like I have a long way to go, but um, it, it has, it's been a successful one. And in terms of how others should define it, I think that you need to learn how to find the joy in whatever you're doing. And once you nail that, you have had a successful career, right? And mm -hmm. so when you think back to that story I told about like roofing and pulling out that like nasty floor and the telemarketing and things like that is like, maybe I had a successful career because I learned how to make the best of the worst. And so when mm -hmm. you how to make the best of the worst, nothing isn't awesome. Like even a job you hate, if you are getting like this like narrow piece of experience, it's going to like help you grow exponentially, you know, when you get to the next thing, that's a win, right? So I mean, I'll leave you with a quick one. When I worked at Creative Converting, which is Hoff, Hoffmaster's other side um, on a Target account, there wasn't a lot of room for creativity, right? But somehow I was like, okay, I can't create, I, I can't source this, you know, amazing plastic toy from Vietnam or whatever thing we were trying to do back there in the early 2000s when no one thought about the environment as much. And um, they wouldn't let me do it. They were just like, no, Target will never go for it. I'm like, let me try. They were not going to let me try. So what I did was a design on a napkin because napkins were our core product. So it was low risk. It wasn't a big deal. I just needed a win at this job before I moved on. I got her to okay it because it was low risk. It was a napkin. And the target buyer walked in and said, I don't know what else is in this room. This is literally what he said. I don't know what else is in this room, but I'm definitely taking that napkin. That napkin is going to be in every store. And it was just like, I quit. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm done. It's a terrible job. I'm done. I got my win, you know? And it's yeah. like, and you can make that whatever you want it to be. Like I got some lifelong friends out of that. You will find something out of any one of these opportunities if that's how you choose to approach your career and you're going to have a garbage job at some point. Find something awesome about it. You can check out more episodes and subscribe to our newsletter at howigotherepodcast.com. Thanks for listening.